This is Leaders Lens, the show that reveals what it really takes to become a great leader. I'm Jacob Espinoza, a Fortune 500 leadership consultant and director of creator success at Workweek. Let's go. Follow the leader, not the mission. They don't, they don't follow PowerPoints or emails. They don't follow stickers in the wall or, you know, taglines. People follow people. And if you're a leader, that person is you. And so they're following you. And so how you show up, your micro interactions, your demeanor, everything you have, you carry yourself, like they're choosing to trust you. And regardless of what team you're leading, that, that doesn't change, you know? So there's a lot of things, but there are some things that come to mind. I love it. And I think the, uh, the benefit of just, and we are alive, the Leaders Lens podcast. And I'm excited to have my good friend, Drew Williams, who's a COO, a con genius. Drew, thank you so much for making it to Leaders up, Lens man? podcast. Let's go. We Let's appreciate go. you. <laughs> yeah, man. The crowd is ready. The crowd is fired up, Drew. They're ready to go. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, we got to know each other working for a large corporation in a previous life. And both of us have now transitioned into careers uh, with startups. And so I'm excited to explore with you just some of the leadership principles that translate well, some of the things that are different. You know, if you're leading a team in a uh, a big corporate environment versus a startup where you're looking at 10 to 50 people. Um, but I want to first talk about a video that I think is just incredible that you released on YouTube that's titled, how are you spending your tank? And we'll leave a link for everybody to click in the, the show notes so they can check it out as well. It's like 10 minute video, definitely recommend checking it out. Um, but I think it's especially relevant right now because people still are, are dealing with the burnout of these last couple of years. You know, people are still seeing the, kind of residual impacts of a lot of the, uh, the life changes people were forced to make and, you know, just tough times people had to, had to work through. So how are you spending your tank? What's the theme of this video? And, uh, why is it a talk that you've been so passionate to give? The theme of it really is understanding like everyone's got a certain level of energy you've got in the day. Like you wake up and birds are chirping and it's the beginning of a day. Your tank is full ideally. And by the end of the day, most of us are tired. And you wind down physically, but you, you know, you wind down throughout the day emotionally as well. So mental, emotionally, you've got a gas tank and throughout the day, that thing is going to hit empty by the end of the day. Normally, um, I think most people can relate to that. You know, at the end of the day, you're just out of gas. You're like, I got, I got nothing Absolutely. left to give. You Absolutely. Know? And it's like yeah. your best, your most creative work is normally done early in the day and that, you know, and so really, if you think through like what's, you know, monitoring, where is your energy going throughout the day, but also through your weeks and years, like where are you spending your energy? In today's world, especially the last two or three years, man, like there's so many things that are taking your energy and attention and so many things to worry about, so many things to be afraid of, so many causes that we all believe we're supposed to be passionate about, but we just don't have enough passion for it. It's like you feel bad because you don't care enough about this issue. You know, whatever the thing is, man, it's just like it's just nonstop, you know, the economy runs on taking your attention right now. And then when your attention is, is vested all these places, you're not able to give your best self to the things that actually matter. And so really it's just understanding like, Hey, like, you know, you're going to spend your energy somewhere and the successful people, it's, you know, seven habits of highly effective people. I know that's one of your, one of your go-tos, but you know, it's that the law of being like proactive is saying, Hey, what can I do about this? And so really it's about taking inventory of when you find yourself worrying about something, stressing about something, and you can f almost feel it. You may ever feel as you're worried about it and you can almost feel the energy sucking out of your body as you worry about something. But successful people take each one of those things and say like, hey, what, what can I do about this? Can I do something about this or not? And if the answer is no, they're quick to be like, that's not going to take my energy. I care about it. It's important. It may be a terrible situation, but a lot of times, you know, if you cut that off, you're able to actually spend your energy in the things that, that do matter. And so uh, where most people go, go south is they spend all their energy on things they can do nothing about. You know, it's like, hey, there's a war on the other side of the world. It's like, that's awful. And you read the headlines and you wake up and you scroll your phone reading this terrible story and it's like taking your energy, but like, hey, what can you do about that? I'm not saying you don't care, but I'm saying is that the best use of your energy today? And so figuring out how to like, you know, stay in my sweet spot of what can I do something about? Because I think the voices screaming for your attention today that are asking you to care about things that you can't do anything about are so loud. Um, and I think that's, you know, like figuring out how to zone that stuff out. Say, wait a minute, no, what can I do? And then really like you find your productivity and you're adding value um, and doing things about it. You know, one of the biggest things outside that circle is other people's behavior. I cannot do anything about 
what my neighbor said, what my cousin did. I can't change this, but we spend so much effort and energy. Like, well, they said this and they did that. And I can't believe it. And it's like, wait a minute. I mean, you're, you're draining your tank on something that's other people's behavior, you know? And so the kind of the law is like, Hey, the more you own your circle of control, the bigger your circle gets because you start to become a person of execution, someone who does what they say, someone who's got a high capacity, you know, you've got those people in your life. You're like, how do they get all that done? Yes. It's, it's because of what they say no to. They say no to the things you're saying yes to and their energy is going to things they can do. Right. And then they, they become a person of a higher net worth and a higher level of leadership, higher level of influence. They're in better physical shape, better mental shape. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden now people are coming to you and you actually can influence other people's behavior because you become a person of a reputation along the way, you know? And I think that's, uh, that's kind of what that's about. So, yeah, I think that a lot of that, just focusing on the things in your control, it gives you the capacity to lead well, because if you're constantly consumed by the breaking news or the new headlines or like the expectations that we're supposed to care about everything in the world is we just don't have the capacity to do as people. And there's no way you can be there for your team at your full potential. So I think that's a, a great analogy. And I kind of look at it as two circles. Like there's this giant circle. That's everything in the world that you can be concerned about. And then in the middle, there's these things that you have control. And I feel like when you really focus on that circle of control, like that control, that circle actually gets bigger and you're able to have an impact and an influence on, on even more. I think it's just even things like shutting off social media if you need to. What are the distractions? You know, like, um, yeah, there's, I read a book a while back, this guy named John Mark Comer. He's a Portland guy. But he, uh, he had this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And highly recommend it, man. Like, but it's just like, the, he talks about the hurried soul. You know, how your soul is hurried and has frantic energy. And he was like, talking about that like the news headlines like we have instant access to horrible information happening all over the planet that no one had 50 years ago and he's like the human soul wasn't meant to be able to handle that weight and so it's interesting concept of like man like you know can i carry that or not and should i be carrying that so i love that you keep your your portland connections alive the big blazer fan absolutely man shouting out the portland Rip city baby yes rip city and we get a lot that we look like twins and I definitely see it. I hope you take it as a compliment because I certainly do. I but do. even before we knew each other, you people got more would message me that. Yeah. Barely, man. Yeah. This is getting thin. I'll show the camera oh, a little bit. But Oh, yeah. I got... Yeah, once you start connecting, then you got to go. And just gotta <laughs> it's too late at that point. Off, man. Yeah. I've always looked forward yeah. to having a he gray hair, but I don't know if it's going to make it. I think the, the yeah. hair might go before it turns gray. So there's a race happening yeah. right now. We'll see who wins. Our rap skills, rap skills are the other thing that we get compared on to. You're a better rapper than I am, but I, I do dabble. We need to do the leadership rap. I'm bringing it to TikTok. I posted a few videos well, I saw on, it, man. on Twitter. I didn't know. I don't think I knew about the rapping. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your, I want to hear about your history of rapping, how you got into that, but then we can maybe transition and talk about your, your background in leadership as well. Well, I think, man, I just grew up in the, in the nineties, man, back when rap music was it was like Tupac and Biggie and they were like rapping about real stuff. They were actually like trying to like shoot each other. Stuff. So yeah. I had a, you know, I was into, you know, me and my buddies had big stereo systems in our cars and it was whose bass could get louder. And, you know, so that was the thing is just driving around, listening to that era of rap music, you know, Dre, all those people. Like were you freestyling a little bit on your own or were you mostly just going with other people's lyrics? No, no, I was mostly just a karaoke king, man. Okay, I'm not okay, on your okay, level okay. of rap, okay. but yeah. I had a check. Yeah. And talk to me about leadership. You growing up, have managed very large teams. You're close to a thousand people. Now we've transitioned to a startup, but what was your journey into leadership? What did that look like? My journey to leadership really started at, you know, uh, last company we we're at. And like, it was, um, I'd led different things like in college, I was a, you know, RA and things like that. And like, that's why I probably really realized I was, a, I wanted to be a leader of people, um, was through that avenue as church and all those things too, where, you know, I really realized the influence, like it lit my fires to be able to influence and help other people, you know, and it was really about, you know, when you can put self on the shelf, that didn't mean to rhyme, but, and then actually like invest and serve other people and see like, Hey man, I can really help them and lead them. That is what lit my fires. That's what got me motivated and excited. And so whether it was managing people directly or thought leadership, right. Finding creative new ways to like help people be more successful. Those are the things that I like, I enjoy, you know? And so that's kind of what happened. And then, you know, in 2015, I moved to uh, Missouri uh, to lead a call center. And that was probably the big leap. I went from like this program manager guy to like leading hundreds of people. And then I got promoted into a director role and a senior director role. And so, um, but really like that was where, you know, there's a team that was struggling and needed a lot of help. And they, you know, asked me to come in and 
moved to a city I'd never, I'd only visited like once, you know, and we just said, yes, my wife and I were like, yeah, let's do it. Like let's take the opportunity, you know? And that was one of those pivotal moments when it was like, do the thing that no one else wants to do or do the thing that people are afraid to do. You know, people see problems, you guys see opportunities. And so we saw a big opportunity, jumped on it. And that's when it really, the rubber met the road on all of, a lot of my philosophical beliefs about leadership, putting those into practice, and then finding a way to get a team that had historically lost to start winning and winning big, but really started out, you know, redefining culture, how do leaders act, how do leaders behave. And the first year, two years was not about driving numbers harder. It was about creating a leadership standard of how we behave. And we knew that if we created the right environment, people would rise to that occasion. And so that was kind of the emphasis. And we had a big turnaround there, was able to influence a lot of people. And that was, it was just a ton of fun. You know, it was a ton of fun helping people, you know, and that's kind of always my, my vision for it. Um, and so you learn a lot, trial and error. I failed a lot, made a lot of bad mistakes. I had some more seasoned leaders around me that kept me in check and helped me make some more wise decisions at critical points. I had great leaders in front of me and my boss, you know, the people, you know, my VP and the people who poured into me had really kept me on track, but it was fun. It was almost like my own like long-term leadership lab of trying this and let's see if it works and how, what if people respond to, you know, but I've always been a people watcher too. I always watch people like, not just like at the airport, like what are they wearing and why are they wearing that? But like, you just, what decisions did you make and how did, how did that play out? Like I'm old enough now where I can see some of the guys I grew up with and I can go back and see key decisions they made at certain seasons and how that one degree of separation changed the trajectory of their life from one place to another. And so I've always been big on like, you know, decision-making and, and helping people make the right decisions so they have the right long-term results. So I think that's one of the, uh, the advantages of our background working in customer service and a call center is you saw so many different types of relationships with the leaders, like so many different personalities and how this personality can potentially clash with, with somebody else with a different type of personality and I felt like I just had so much experience and benefit of seeing how things play out. Like when they acted this way, like I saw how the, the dominoes, how they would play out. And so now I can be a lot more proactive on how do we get ahead of some of those things and coaching people on how to not make those same mistakes. I think too, like, you know, watching in that environment, there were some people who'd never led before that you have to spot leadership talent potential and help them fine tune that and then help them be successful. And so you have a lot of phenomenal leaders that had never led anything before. And so teaching them kind of the ropes on how to do that and then watching them adjust to those things and learning leadership, man, that was always a passion for me too. Is And then you see how it can change our life because now they realize I've got a marketable skill called leadership that every company will pay for. You know, every company, big or small, needs two things regardless. It's sales and leadership. And if you can sell or you can lead, you'll always find a way to make money. And so watching these people unlock that, that wait a minute, I can be get good at this skill and change my family's trajectory from the income it produces. So that was always passion point too. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, that was the most fulfilling thing is seeing somebody just start believing in themselves, start seeing themselves differently and be on a pathway to make six figures, which if you live in where I live in Salem, Oregon is a really good living. Um, that was just really, really exciting. Were there things that you learned to look for and identify as cues that somebody was maybe ready to take that step and, and, and step into leadership? I think I always looked for, you know, this is probably a bias because people always look for what they had in themselves. But I mentioned earlier, but that spark, you know, you see someone who you, you see their light bulbs go off when they help someone else, you know, when they're like, man, I help that person be better. And you see the spark in their, in the light in their eye when they're like, that's when I'm like, okay, so you get that it's about other people and you get, it's about making their name great and not yours. You know, like those are those things where the root systems of like what they believe if you can see that and them, that was always important, you know, because there's always the person who says, I want to climb the corporate ladder, you know, I want to make more money. I want to do this for myself. I want, and it's like, okay, cool. But the most successful ones, I mean, leadership has a price tag to it. It's hard. You know, you're going to sew into 10, 20 people and give them everything you got. And a few of them are going to be really successful and thank you along the way. And majority of them aren't going to thank you, you know? And a lot of them are actually going to badmouth you when they don't get what they want because you're the only leader who actually said what they needed to hear. And so like those hard things, if you really invest into people, like there is hard, it's difficult emotionally and mentally. And so you got to have that spark for the few of them that do take off and that really you see that change their life. That's got to motivate you to the point that you're willing to work with all the hard things of leadership because it's not sexy and it's not fun. Uh, it's challenging. And so if they had that inherent desire to serve people, that's helpful. Um, you have to have self-awareness. 
you have to have emotional intelligence. I know that's, you know, one of your big things too, man. You got to have that emotional intelligence to be able to regulate self, read other people, you know, and then figure out how can I lift the atmosphere of the room, you know? And so kind of that sense in a room, can they see what the problem, do they inherently see what the problems are and are they willing to be part of the solution, you know? And then coachability, you know, the ability to give and receive feedback, which really falls in the emotional intelligence bucket, but the ability to give and receive feedback effectively is a huge deal. So outside of that, a lot of things can be taught and a lot of personalities can lead. It's not always these extroverted, charismatic people that become great leaders. And then that's a mistake. We often mistake charisma for character. And then we put pe charismatic people in the rooms they don't deserve to be in. Uh, and then their lack of character actually causes the whole house to fall down. You know what I mean? So understanding that pers different personalities can lead. You know, if you're someone who's an introvert, maybe you don't love being in front of people or whatever, that doesn't mean you can't be a great leader. Every personality can lead. It's about the, what are the character qualities and the inherent belief systems they have. You can see those things. You, you can work with that and shape it. Love it. And something that I think you have experience with kind of building off the idea of preparing people for new leaders to become leaders is that onboarding process of identifying somebody with potential, going through the interview process, hiring, and then setting them up for success to lead teams. What advice would you have for somebody that's maybe doing that for the first time or trying to learn how to do that better in their business? I mean, if they're trying to onboard, it's, you know, pick the right people, know why you picked them. Leadership is a skill. You know, it's like playing guitar or shooting free throws. Like the more you do it, it takes repetition on things. And so I think it's walking with them through things, being a safe place to ask questions. There's no promotion like fairy dusts. Like a lot of times what happens, we give someone an offer letter or whatever. Hey, you got promoted to leader. And we think that the leadership fairy comes on them that night and like, you know, sprinkles leadership dust on them. All of a sudden they're like, they know. And it's like, well, just because you gave them a title doesn't mean that now they're a good leader. And I think that's where it's like, you got to stay close to them and invest in them along the way. And you have to be a safe place for them to fail, especially when they're navigating people issues. You know, if they're navigating conflict. They're trying to motivate. They've got the outlier person on team that they just can't seem to connect with. You've got to be a sounding board and coach them. And that's where I think as you elevate as a leader, it's the ability to lead leaders and create more leaders. That's that multiplication effect. That's magic. Where people go wrong a lot of time is if I'm in that spot where I'm trying to pick leaders or develop them, I only see leaders and people who look and act like me or maybe have my personality. And then as soon as I put them in role, I just think they're going to figure it out. And I think that's where, you know, like you got to coach them and walk through them through hands-on stuff. So be a safe place for them to say, I don't know. Because when we have that leadership fairy dust mentality, we put new leaders in a spot where they feel like just because my job title changed, now I'm supposed to have all the answers. You know, I must have gotten hired in this leadership role because I'm the smartest guy here. So I have to have the answers. I got to look smart. I, I can't ask for help. You know, I can't say, I don't know. You know, they hired me to be perfect. And it's like, we don't say that, but we act that way, you know? And so I think it's like staying super close to along the way and say, Hey, what did you struggle with this week? And be a safe place for a new leader to come to you with what's not working because they just got that promotion, man. They're, they're now internally on a mission to prove that they belong in that role. And so making sure that they stay humble and you create that through your own humility. You see the newly promoted person acting that way towards their boss, but also towards their team where they want to feel like they need to have every single answer, which, which is challenging. I think there is a lot of insecurity, but then with confidence, you're able to be vulnerable and tell your boss, like, this is, this is what I need help with, but also tell your people, like, here's where I can really use your help. I'm struggling with these things and, and really build that culture of trust, which I know you've always done a great job of in your teams. Yeah. I think you're also trying to like, when you're trying to identify a leader in your organization, look for who already has it. Who do the people naturally trust? Who are they following without the title? I always said like, Hey, when you get promoted, like everyone should be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, but when you, I'd say this before, when I give someone a promotion and the whole building is like, what? <laughs> yep. People start like, quitting, oh. right? Where people quit right. because like, this is the new boss. Like I'm out of here. I'm not working right. for that guy. Yeah. 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 Who you promote and what you celebrate is, is what you'll get, you know? And I think it's important that you, you know, you know, I used to tell people like, I can give you a job, but I can't give you leadership. Leadership's earned from the team and earned from the people. It's like that rents do every day thing. It's like, you have to earn that. And if I promote you to a title before you've earned leadership from the people, you're going to fail because then you got a title, but no respect, you know? And I think that's the thing is like, if you earn it from the people, you know, then when you get the title, they're already willing to follow, you know, because the pressure of the title can crush new leaders. And so making sure that they have it, that they've already earned that respect, they've earned leadership from the team through their characters or how they show up, through how they're doing the job, 
you know, people are like, Hey, I want to, I want to, I can learn from this person. I more like them, you know, but if you promote an underperformer just because they're really charismatic and say all the right things, or a lot of organizations, it's, you know, nepotism or whatever, where it's like, Hey, they got promoted because of who they know and who they're hanging out with outside of work. You're setting your organization up to fail because the people who are actually doing your, the work in the organization, not the leaders, but the real employees who are working with your customers, right? Um, those are the people, right? That you got to win their trust over and over and over again. Um, and if you choose the wrong people, you're, you're in trouble, but don't give out jobs before they've earned leadership. I love it. Yeah. Leadership's a perspective, not a position is the way I've always looked at it. So that's powerful. Yeah. I'm also curious to hear the transition, the transition from a big company to a nonprofit or not a nonprofit rather, but to a, uh, to a startup, I transitioned to a nonprofit. I'm talking about myself right now, but to a startup, what were some of the differences that you, you saw first? I'd love to hear some of the similarities as well. Maybe after that. Yeah, I think some of the differences are, you know, I felt like I got off of a, uh, you know, off of a battleship and onto a kayak. You know what I mean? Like a giant corporation, there's so much resource. It's just massive. You could run around the thing for years and never reach the end of it. You know what I mean? Like it's multiple buildings spread out all the country, 100,000 employees, you know, like this, it's huge. And then I came here and I was like employee number five, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and oh, we have no revenue because we haven't actually launched our product yet. And so like, so you got to stay scrappy. And so like, there's some big differences. I think, you know, the pros of at a startup, you've got agility, you know, you can make changes because there's nothing that exists. It's like, it becomes whatever you make it. So this yeah. company is awesome. It's because we made good decisions, but if it's not, it's because I didn't make good decisions. I got no one else to blame, you know? And so that agility also comes with a responsibility of, you know, there's no passing the buck. Like this is what we make it. And then, so you got to do what you got to do to make it happen. You know? And I think that's, there's some pros and cons in there. Like the agility and the freedom is great, but that's a heavy weight. I can't blame HR. I can't blame IT. I can't blame <laughs> some other team that I've never met. Like, well, the people upstairs said this. So we, no, like you're it. And so I think um, that's part of it. You know, one of the benefits of a startup is it inherently attracts risk tolerant people. We have 18 employees now. All 18 fully understood what they were walking into. They understood the risk of a startup. They understood the upside. Right. Because if this thing, you know, like most startups, if it takes off, we've all got equity and it's going to end really well for all of us, you know, but if it doesn't, I mean, 90% of startups fail. That's just a fact. And so in seven months in, I'm like, yeah, I see why this is hard, but I think it's, you know, you attract risk tolerant people who are in for the ride and they believed in the vision enough to commit. And most of them left more stable. I don't know if what's stable anymore, but they left bigger companies and more stable jobs to come here and be a part of this. And so Everyone has that mentality of being all in, which is fun. Like no one's here just collecting a paycheck because they know if we do that, we all die. <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah. it attracts that, you know, and, um, but I think, you know, the, the sides of, you know, the corporate things that, you know, maybe I underestimated after leaving, like there's a lot of resources in a giant corporation that we just simply don't have, whether that's teams or you got people who are experts in certain things. Like you always know someone who knows someone who can answer or solve your problem within a giant corporation. You've got brilliant creative people on staff there. You've got full on marketing and advertising. You have all these groups that can really do anything that you need them to do. Whereas that's harder to, you know, to have here. I think I underestimated how important that was. You know, big corporations, it's easy to see the big picture. You're publicly traded. You know, you got a stock price. You got all these scoreboards that are built in where you know how well it's going, you know. And I think the stability factor too, like, you know, if you get set up in a great corporation. A lot of people are there for 10, 20, 30 years. You know, I was there for 20 years. Wow. And so there's some stability. You can, you can create that, you know? So there's some pros and cons to both, especially for someone like both of us who are a lot of years at one company. What I underestimated is how much relational equity I had there, right? So I had a, knew a lot of people who had a, had a long history and reputation with. And thankfully I had, you know, had a good reputation but when you come to a new new company, you know, or start a new company, guess who cares what you did at the last place? Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> and so you can't have that Uncle Rico syndrome of like, well, back at this place, I did that. And I did that. No one cares. Look at my it's trophies. Like, Nobody cares about exactly. your trophies. Yeah. Back in high school, I did, you know, no one cares. <laughs> yeah. And so when you walk away from all of that, you got to understand that you build up a lot of equity where people say your name in an organization, they know what it means. Here, you got to start over. And so that's like the big, you're taking a risk financially, but you're also taking a risk with just your own relational equity. You're putting a huge, huge gamble on yourself. I mean, you did the same thing doing what you're doing, right? You, I would have bet on the name on the back of my Jersey. I can go do this, you know? 100%. And so that's a, it's a big change, but uh, it's been invigorating and exciting for me. 
Yeah, I recently started a, a transition from the nonprofit and I started working full-time at Workweek as a director of creator success, which is something I'm excited about because I get to start something from the ground up and really create this department. I'm also really looking forward to the networking and just the opportunity to learn about you know, how a, a startup works from the inside. What were some of the biggest motivations for you in making that that transition? There's a lot of them. I believed in it first and I believed in our founder. Um, he's a person of high character, high aligned values. You know, people always buy the vision before they buy the mission, you know? And so inherently our company was, I first in love with the mission. I saw it, I got it. It made sense. But the vision of who our founder was and understanding the more I learned about him, the more I'm like, this is the guy I can hitch my wagon to. And you gotta be careful who you hitch your wagon to because your, your team will make or break you, you know? And so understanding what you're hitching your wagon to. And I think, you know, I, I just felt, um, you know, I'm a faith guy and people put different words on it, but I just knew, I knew that it was time for a change for me. You know, I knew that it was time to take a leap. It took a lot of courage and it was scary, but I'm like, you know, I know this, what I'm supposed to do. I knew him, I know her. Like it just, I knew it. And it wasn't a running from anything or like a, you know, it was just more of a, Hey, I'm ready to go take a chance on something. And I had built enough of a, you know, nest egg to take a risk and take a leap. I think I would tell anybody who's, who's climbing the ladder right now within a corporation or you're seeing your income go up year over year with promotions. The wise person told me, stay out of the golden handcuffs. And that's one thing that I did. And that's a mentality of saying, Hey, like I'm not just cause I'm making more money. doesn't mean I need to spend more money. You got to view your savings and investments as a say yes fund. And so that's another thing I had too. I'm like, I had the ability to be like, I don't need to make a ton of money. I can go take a risk on something. And so from a decision-making standpoint, I often tell people what has the highest upside, the highest ceiling with the lowest acceptable floor. So like I'm a sports fan, I know you are too, like the NBA draft time comes around, they're looking at prospects, they're like, hey, what's this guy's ceiling and what's his floor? The ceiling is how good could they possibly get? The floor is what's the worst they could possibly be? And so a lot of times like people are taking, they're just looking at the floors and like, okay, what's the lowest common denominator? For me, I'm more prone to be like, hey, what, what's got the highest possibility? What is the highest ceiling with the lowest acceptable floor? Sometimes something's got a high ceiling, but the, also the situation could get real bad. And it's like, well, I couldn't deal with that. You know, for me, I weighed out what's the ceiling of staying where I'm at 10, 20 years, what's the best it could get. And I felt like I was hitting some of those ceilings where I'm like, I don't want to do the next thing. You know, the next thing for me wasn't a thing I wanted to do. Um, and so I feel like I was hitting a ceiling there and I looked at the ceiling here. I'm like, the ceiling's higher actually. And the floor is lower, but I could deal with that. You know, yeah, I'm like, Hey, yeah. even if the thing crashes and burns, I was willing to bet in the name of the back of my jersey that I could go do something else too. And so when I looked at that, those facts, like I guess a high ceiling right here and a floor that I could deal with. And the floor was it crashes and burns, you know, and it's still good. But I think that's where for me making the jump standpoint, you know, I think this, the ceilings were too attractive for me to ignore and the floor was not that scary, yeah. you know, and the people say you're taking a risk by doing something like this, but you're taking a risk to stay where you're at. The risk is that you wake up 10, 20 years from now saying, I wish I would have taken a chance. Yeah. The risk is 10, 20 years from now, you're sitting in the same job doing the same thing. And that's the thing too. It's like, man, you, you're taking a big risk either way. We just don't frame it up like that. I think that's something that's um, interesting about risk adverse people is like, what's the potential downside of not, of just staying the same because sometimes people get caught in those loops and as leaders, we have to help coach them through it, but of just like, I just want to keep doing this because that's what I, I did today. I want to do it again tomorrow. And like, sometimes we have to point out people like this is, you know, look, look where this is headed. If we keep doing this thing, this is where you're going to go. So I appreciate you calling that and out. I think people see the, the stability of what they know. They'll see that those as, as safety and security, but to another person, those same walls are actually a prison cell of what they, what limits them. And it's that say how you, your relationship with risk is viewed one way or the other. It's the house you live in or it's the prison you're stuck in, you know, but sometimes the exact same things that make you feel stable, uh, for someone who's ready to take a leap or the kind of the prison bars holding them in, you know, yeah, I think it's a, a powerful piece of being a leader to help people get out of those prisons. And, and totally. And I know you've, you've done that in your former career, but in your current one as well. But what are, what are some of the, the similarities between leading in a large organization where you had a team of a thousand people, where you're really the mayor of a small city at that point when you're, yeah. when you're the director of a call center 
uh, versus now, you know, we're a much smaller team, but the responsibilities seem like they, they've increased a little bit. There's more similarities and differences. Leadership is still leadership. People are still people. And, you know, great leaders operate on principles that don't change. Lucky leaders or system managers, like they operate on a set of tactics that they think will work in every scenario. And so one thing I've learned is that principles don't change, but tactics do, you know? And so a principle is something that you know to be true and following your true north as a leader, you understand there are principles that just work no matter where or when you apply them. And it doesn't matter if I'm coaching my kids' little league team or leading them a team of a thousand people. You know, a principle is like, you'll get what you celebrate. And so whether it's a thousand people, 18, it doesn't matter. Like, what are you as a leader celebrating? You know, what are you recognizing? What are you appreciating? Like those things you'll get more of because there's not an organization where people don't want to be recognized and seen for their contributions. And so a principle is I recognize people and I take time to recognize and call out specific recognition things that I see. And that, no matter where you're at, that doesn't change because people don't change. You know, if you're a servant leader, you believe that people matter. Like those are principles where it's like, hey, I'm going to, you know, or team building. Like if I really truly inherently believe that the team is the most important thing and that my success rides or dies on the team that I build, then that principle, you know, the tactic might look different. How you go about doing that, like a recognition, I mentioned, how you go about recognizing it will be different. Like here, right now, our team is mostly software engineers, you know, versus, you know, call center reps is a big difference, right? And so how you celebrate. So, and what recognition, like is, it works. Like I don't, it's not plug and play. I'm not doing all the exact same stuff I used to do, but the principles don't change. And so I think um, that that's something that's been a really cool lesson to see. You know, one thing that yeah, I, I think is, you know, leadership still revolves around trust. At the end of the day, people follow, they follow the leader, not the mission. They don't, they don't follow PowerPoints or emails. They don't follow stickers in the wall or, you know, taglines. People follow people. And if you're a leader, that person is you. And so they're following you. And so how you show up, your micro interactions, your demeanor, everything you have, you carry yourself, like they're choosing to trust you. And regardless of what team you're leading, that, that doesn't change, you know? So there's a lot of things, but there are some things that come to mind. I love it. And I think the, uh, the benefit of just being a boss, somebody wants to work with is an understated employee benefit. Like just yeah. be, be that founder that people want to come to work for. Um, and there's a lot of things that go into it, but a lot of what you're saying about, about your founders, I feel very similar about Becca and Adam here at work week where I wanted to be part of this team because I had great rapport with them. When they talked about the company, I, you know, I, I've understood the vision and I was aligned with their perspective on how to treat employees and just kind of where the media industry is headed. So I think when you see somebody that you connect with, it's powerful and it's inspiring. You want to, you want to show up every day and do well for a person like that. One of my things that stuck with me a long time ago, someone told me, Hey, if you be who you're supposed to be, you'll always end up doing what you're supposed to do. A leader's job is to provide clarity. Like, hey, where are we going? Here's what the future's going to look like. The last two or three years, because there's so much uncertainty, everything about the pandemic just crushed leaders. It didn't crush me. You know, it was hard because I had no clue what was going to happen. I didn't know what to do. And so when everyone's looking to a leader to provide clarity in situations where you have no clarity yourself, like that was, that was hard, you know? And so I think one thing I learned through that season that has stuck with me is I got to be who I'm supposed to be. And I can't necessarily tell my team what we're going to do. You know, there are so many uncertainties. You think about the last like 2020, 2021, there's so much going on. Like, I don't know what we're going to do, but I could double down on who we were going to be. Like, Hey, I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen six months from now, but I can tell you what we're going to be. We're going to be, you know, employee focused, you know, we're going to focus on our customers. We're going to be transparent and real. We're going to do our best to make wise decisions with the information that we have. We're going to communicate as soon as decisions are made, you know, like those are the things we could double down on. No matter what the decision is or what's going to happen in my, my uncontrollables, I can tell you who I'm going to be as your leader. And then people will buy into that, even though they don't even know where you're going, because I didn't know where I was going, you know, and I think that's true for most leaders in every organization, but when you do know, you got to provide clarity, but either way, when in doubt, double down on values and who you are as a leader and people will buy into that, even if they don't necessarily know where the company's going, you know, and I think that's one thing I've seen to be very true. You know, as a startup, we've had to shift visions, shift directions, unexpected things, you know, like revenue, you know, like we, we don't have customers yet. Right. And so like 
yeah, we're getting investors to sign on. Like, There's so many moving parts and things that change. It's hard to say exactly what's going to happen as a leader, but our team is bought in because of our founder and his consistency, his character, the way he shows up every single day. They don't necessarily, this will sound worse than I mean it, but sometimes your people don't care where you're going. They care that you're going there. Because if you're a great leader, they're following you, whether you're going to, you know, Michigan or Florida, they're in for the ride because they trust you, you know? And I think that's one thing that I've seen here is like, you know, become that trustworthy leader in times of uncertainty and people will stay the course and not run when things get scary. I think that's one of the, uh, we talk about just making decisions and staying the course. I think that's one of the flaws of servant leadership, where sometimes I think people interpret that as, well, I need to get permission from my team before I make these decisions. And you know, sometimes as a leader, you just have to have to make that decision. And it sounds like you're, you've kind of learned that as well from experience. And that's what people are looking for. I've learned that the hard way too, because I was definitely that leader. I mean, I'm, I'm about servant leadership mentality, you know, like I, um, that's my motivation. And, but there's difference between being a servant leader, being a people pleaser. I think that's hard, you know, because you have so many quotables. There's like, yeah, I like stealing tweets from this interview. (laughs) I'm going to quote you for some of them though. (laughs) Hashtag. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, a people pleaser, you're trying to make everybody happy. And really at its core, you might call yourself a servant leader, but if all you're really trying to do is make people like you, that has selfish motives because you're actually trying to make your name great by being the most likable leader that there is. Yeah. And bro, I, I mean, I, guilty, you know, I learned that. I'm like, man, I think I'm being this super humble guy, but as soon as I had to make the right decision for the business, because if you don't make right decisions for the business, it doesn't matter how liked you are when the business goes under because you just tried to make everybody happy. Yeah. You know, uh, I had a leader I worked for. He's like, hey, if you don't make everybody happy, hire a clown, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, for sure. Uh, you know, Pizza so you, you can serve people, but still do it in a way, you know, at the end of the day, we're making, it's a business. That's where a lot of stuff in the last couple of years got mixed up too. So many of us like, oh, we're a family, we're a family, we're a family until the business necessitated decisions that a family would never do. And I think that's where it's like, you know, be careful with that stuff because then it's like, if we're a family and you're, you know, a people pleaser and it's this, you know, communal approach to, it's like, well, that's not how business operates. And sometimes you got to make hard decisions. And as part of the team, losing one person is better than losing all the people because you didn't have the courage to lose the one. And to view it as like, hey, by making this hard decision, I know that 30% of my staff doesn't like and is going to be real fired up over. That's actually serving the greater vision of the team. And so I'm willing, by I will serve the team by taking the hits from the unsatisfied employees or the people who don't like this decision. And I'll be the face of the decision they don't like because I know it's, it's better for the greater good. That is also servant leadership. And, you know, your people pleasing tendencies are going to get stepped on a little bit. And sometimes, and you mentioned 30% of the employees, sometimes it might be 80% of the employees don't like it. But as a leader, still having the confidence to understand, like, we're doing this for this reason, like giving context as to why you're making the decision but being confident enough in the, the information you have to make that decision as well, to, to push it forward before that reason, because it still is for the greater good. A lot of people just want to be heard too. You know, a lot of times people want to say, Hey, like that, I hate this decision. Here's why. And just the fact you take time to actually listen to them, either not changing your mind makes a difference. You know, people want to be heard, you know, but I think that's where you can level up your team's understanding of the business. And the more you, you know, the more people understand where your business is going and how it makes money and, you know, all those things, like the more they come on board with what needs to happen in order to get to that goal, you know, because if you create a circus event where everyone's just having a good time, like, and that's where you can go too far, man. I went too far on that on certain things, man. I did, you know, and I had to learn like, man, I created an image of myself that now I can't back up. And now that I have to break my commitment because I got to do the right thing for the business. But, um, you know, I think when it comes to even team members that come and go, right. Someone said this to me recently in a podcast I was hosting and it, um, it hit me hard, but he was like, the best way to keep your, your good employees is to get rid of the bad ones. And I was like, dang, I mean that to view that and be like, no, I'm serving the team by making this decision of getting rid of a bad employee. We've all been that person who's the good employees working next to somebody who's not pulling their weight. It is the most demoralizing thing. And you're actually serving the greater team by making that hard decision. You know, and I think that's where you get like servant leadership goes beyond just pizza, cupcakes, and pony rides. You know what I mean? Yep. Yes. The lack of accountability is going to kill the team culture for sure. Yeah. It's interesting because people avoid those conversations because they're so focused on the team culture. They want people to be happy at work. So they avoid the hard conversation. But the reality is that's what's actually going to really do the most damage to the culture of the team. Yeah. Somebody told me this once. They said, what you permit, you promote. 
Yes. And that always stuck with me. It's like, man, you know, I'm by avoiding this difficult conversation, by avoiding this accountability, because for my own pride, I don't want to take the brunt of being the bad guy in a situation. I don't want to make, you know, like it's, you know, my stomach still hurts every time I have to fire somebody, you know, but you know, what you permit, you promote. And by not doing anything, you're communicating to the larger team that you can slack off and get away with it. And it's okay. Nothing will kill high performers faster than having to work next to people who aren't. And then having their ceiling lowered because as a leader, you're not, you're not doing the right thing. Something you brought up earlier is a being employee focused. And I feel like every company has that on their website now that they're, they're employee focused and they probably think that they are. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what, what does that actually mean? The old school days of hierarchical leadership where the big boss can sit behind a desk, you know, fire off emails, come in and out the back door, have an executive assistant that screens them from the people that, that that's done. And if it's not, it needs to be. And I think that's where I think people are coming around to say, like, wait a minute, like uh, it's a buyer's and seller's market. And I think what the pandemic taught people, a lot of people got to reevaluate their life and change roles. You know, I think you had to learn that employment's not, it's not a seller's market, it's a buyer's market, right? And so the employee actually had more leverage over the company for a while. That's probably going to change in this next season as we probably go into a tough 23 and 24. But I think it caused people like, wait, what are we doing to re-earn our people's commitment? I think being employee focused, there's a lot of different tactics that can come out through that. But I think what you have to realize is say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm expecting my employees in a, in a world where they actually have options, I'm expecting them to recommit to me. And you got to recommit and recommit. And it's not just about drinking the corporate Kool-Aid. It's about, hey, what am I doing to earn their trust over and over again? And that might come through ways of, you know, perks or benefits. What I think a lot of companies do is they say, we're employee focused because we give one extra week of vacation to another company or employee focused because we've got ping pong tables and massage chairs and what other other benefits, you know? But I think if you do the tactic without the principle, like if you do those things, but at the end of the day, people know your heart's not in it. You're just trying to run some gimmick to increase employee satisfaction surveys, you know, which, you know, <laughs> done that too. Yeah. Uh, but then they see through it. You know, I think people want authentic leaders that actually care, you know, and I think to be employee focused, you know, I think it was Jim Harbaugh, football coach said, hey, the trick to getting your people to believe that you really care about them is to really care about them. If you're genuine and authentically coming in and putting your heart into your work and choosing to care about your people, then what you do to prove employee focus will shift and change. And frankly, it doesn't matter. But the fact that you are trying to win them over and get them to recommit by you committing first uh, is an important thing. At the end of the day, employment is a contract. I do this and you give me this much money. I do my part, you do yours. And at every two weeks, those scales are balanced back out when the check clears the bank. When payday hits, you don't owe your employer anything and they don't owe you anything. That's the reality of that contract. No level of, you know, corporate Kool-Aid can change that. The balance is even out every two weeks. And at that point, you owe nobody anything and they don't owe you anything. And you could leave or they could fire you and replace you. Everybody in a big corporation is replaceable. Everyone in any team is replaceable. You really are. So there's contract, which is the underlying thing, but I think to be employee focused, you want to move from a contract relationship to a commitment relationship where it's like, it's not just about I'm trading time for money, but now I'm going to invest my talent for purpose and provision, you know, like instead of just relying on policies and rules, like I'm going to actually rely on trust and honesty, you know, instead of just, you know, in a contract environment, everyone's just, you know, politics and brown nosing and all that stuff that goes on in big teams. You know, but in commitment, it's like, no, we actually got to be good and add value and adding the values what's recognized more than looking right in whatever meeting, you know? And so, you know, I think there's, if you can move it from contract into commitment and that starts with leaders, not the team, but if your leaders demonstrate we're more than just doing a contract, we want to give you more than a paycheck. We actually want to invest in you as a person. I want to understand, Jake, what are your motivations? What are your goals? Who do you want to be outside of here? And how can we leverage this job and this role to help you achieve your goals outside of this place and to actually care. You know, I had a rule like you're not allowed to fire someone unless you know what their kids' names are. If you haven't even gotten to know them to point to even understand like who they are outside of this place, you probably haven't earned trust for them for them to trust you and actually give a hundred percent. So I think when you like, you know, it's a contract, people ever give 75%, but a commitment starting with leaders demonstrating on a consistent basis, we're committed to our employees in a lot of different ways then I think you earn the right to ask for a higher level of commitment from the team. But with, without that, it just becomes contract again. I think that's what we saw in the last three years. Everyone realized this is just a contract. 
Why am I wearing the t-shirt? Why am I bleeding the right color? This is just a contract. But I think it's, it forces leaders back to the drawing board and say, wait a minute, I can have a contract. That's great. But that means I can come and go whenever. If I want to really have these people for a long time and get the best people, I got to demonstrate commitment to them, put money in the bank account of trust with my employee, right? So that they're willing to actually commit back to me and together we can go accomplish a great purpose together. So that was like a super, super long answer. Um, but I think that's where my head's been at recently. It's like, look, even as you build a new company starting over, it's like, hey, everyone here is on contract. But what do I do to get them committed? Well, shoot. I got to be committed first. You know, it always starts with the leader. You know, you can't have an employee code that doesn't apply to leaders. You can't ask your employees to treat customers a way that you're not treating them. You know, as you demonstrate that commitment, you'll move it out of contract relationship into commitment relationship. But, you know, employee focus starts with that, I think, is like, hey, from a leader standpoint, are you actually going to care about your people? Because they know. They know if you care or not. What do you feel is a uh, the most common mistake that you, you see leaders make? Probably the hero complex that leaders get, you know, I think that they have to have all the answers. They think, well, I've got to know it all and I've got to, I'm the leader, so it's on me. And I don't think people choose that, but I think they end up in that space. I think the best leaders figure out, they spend their time understanding who their team is and then setting their team up to be successful by putting them in their sweet spots. You know, good leaders, leaders in that hero thing hire themselves they replicate themselves and they've got a very one-dimensional team because, you know, they define leader as people who think and act like they do. And it's like the, what got you here will get you their concept. It's yeah. like, Hey man, like just because that's what got you here doesn't mean that's what the right, the right and only way to do something. So I think it's that. And then tied into that is it, because of that, they're not staffing their weakness. They're not building a team that's diverse in thought and background and skill set, And so they end up having a one-dimensional team. When you understand and have self-awareness as a leader of what are you not good at? Like there's certain things, man, I'm awful at. I am not good at. They're not, I'm just not good at it. I don't enjoy it. I'm not good at it. And so the best thing I can do is find someone who is good at that, who loves doing those things and bring them into my team. That will create an inherent tension because now I've got people who are the opposite of me on my team. But the tension of managing a diverse team behind closed doors is way better that's a private tension that you got to manage within the team dynamic, but that is way better than the opposite, which is a one-dimensional team in the background that has no tension because we all think the same way. You put a product out to market and it crashes and burns. And so the public failure of a non-diverse team is way worse than the private tensions of a diverse team. And I think that's where a lot of leaders struggle is they just, you know, they don't build that team. They think it's all on them. Their idea always wins because they're the leader. And so like they have this hero complex where it's like, that actually kills them in the long run. And so have the self-awareness, understand, hey, you're not great at everything. Get people around you who are great at those things and let them go. Let them do their thing. And you'll, you'll do great things together as a team. But I yeah. love it. I love it. All right, next question here. What is a book that you've either recommended or given as a gift most often? And what's one lesson that you learned from that book? I think the one that I probably use the most, and it's kind of a cheese ball pick, but it's the 21 laws of irrefutable or 21 irrefutable laws of leadership by John Maxwell. I probably give it out because it's 21 chapters. Each one of those 21 chapters is a book by itself. They're short. It's got like practical examples, but there's a lot of timeless things that don't change in that, you know? And I think there's certain laws like, you know, the law of attract, like you attract who you are, not who you wish you were. People will be drawn to you based on who you actually are, not who you wish you were. Things like the law of the lid, where it's like the most important thing you can do as a leader is increase your leadership capacity, you know, raise the ceiling of your own capabilities as a leader. That's what the organization needs most from you. That's probably the one that I've given out the most, but yeah, that's, that's kind of a blueprint. The other one is follow your true North. That's a phenomenal book. That one, someone gave that to me, but I think that one gave me the confidence to understand who I was as a leader and knowing that you have an internal compass. And you got to follow your true north as a leader. And I think that's you back to the question of the courage to leave the big stable thing and go on my own. That was a following my true north moment where it was like, no, nah, I know who I am and I know who I'm not and I'm secure in who I am. And I'm not going to try to be something I'm not, you know, and it's really go for it. So follow your true north is something if you're, if you're struggling with security as a leader, which every leader does, most leaders tend to get really insecure. Follow your true north is probably the, the, the my go-to. I love it. Well, Drew, I appreciate you being here on the Leaders Lens podcast. It's pretty incredible how many parallels there are in our, in our story. And I'm 
I'm very yeah, fortunate yeah. you're able to take the time and you know have the courage to be the first ever guest on this podcast. But tell us a little bit about Congenius, what you're working on, because I know your product will either be launched or be uh, be prepared to be launched you know, when this episode is released. Yeah, we'll be so we'll be out to market in uh, Q1 this year. So different levels of marketing will go into that. So later this year, we'll be marketing pretty heavily. Uh, but Congenius, we're a, a software company now that's building software for the residential construction market. So if you are a residential contractor, builder, remodeler, basically if you build something in people's homes, uh, you're a potential customer for us. And so what we're doing is building software to help those guys save time and make money. Pretty simple. Um, but you know, in that space, there's you know four out of five residential contractors go out of business in the first five years. And it's not because they're not talented tradesmen. They're phenomenal tradesmen and craftsmen. They're good at building things. Um, but what Congenius does is comes alongside and gives them a software that's easy to use. It's not overly complex, but helps them understand how to bid and estimate accurately to make sure they're profitable on every single job and to increase their bottom line to make more money. So most of these guys would rather be out working with their hands and building. That's why they got into that space and not behind a computer doing estimates and invoices and all those things. And so we kind of take the pain out of that to make it simple, but also make sure they make more money. Um, that they're not four out of five that go out of business. We want to change that number to that more of these guys are successful. So a lot of blue collar, hardworking Americans out there that are working hard to build the buildings we live in. And they are phenomenal tradesmen and craftsmen. We're trying to help them become better businessmen to make sure that they can make more money, spend more time at home with their families, have long-term futures with the trading craft that they've built. So that's what Canadians is about. Uh, check us out. Our first product launches again this spring. It's about estimating and bidding right to make sure you're winning You're winning more jobs and have more profit coming in off of those jobs as step one. I love it. We'll make sure we leave the link in the show notes so people can check it out. Also check out Drew's video, How Will You Spend Your Tank, which is an incredible 10-minute watch. And um, I hope Drew starts making some more content. I know he knows a ton about leadership and always has a ton of value to bring, man. Thanks for being here. I'm still learning, man. I'm signed up for your next, your next uh, webinar, man. Always learning. Thank you for listening to the show. Don't miss another episode of Leader's Lens and the inside scoop on becoming a great leader. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love Leader's Lens, please tell a friend.